there are two readings this evening. Uh, they're on page eight and seven of your zines. Uh, the first comes from the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter five, verses one to nine. And the second comes from the first letter to the Thessalonians, uh, chapter four, uh, verse 13 to chapter five, verse 11. So beginning with the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter five, verses one to nine. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And now from the first letter to the Thessalonians, commencing at chapter four, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Hello. 
for some stretch, hello, Joggy. Thanks for serving us. Um, for what it's worth, by the way, I don't know how this happened at the office, but 4 verses 13 to 18, which is the first section, is the NIV, uh, 2011, and then 5 verses 1 to 11 is the ESV. How do we do that? That's pretty tricky, isn't it? Just so you know that when I get to 5 verses 1 to 11, which is going to be the shorter part of the, the message, I will be um, speaking from the NIV, where it's brothers and sisters, not just brothers. And, um, and so you might want to follow on your Bibles, your phones, etc. when we get to that part. Shall I pray? Let's do that. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, on this day of Pentecost, uh, where we remember and recall and take joy in the gift of your spirit, we pray that you be at work within us. May your will be my will. May your power be my power. We ask for deep conviction in the gospel and a deeper hope in the world around us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. John 11 verse 35 simply says, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. When Martha lost her brother to death, like us, she grieved, and Jesus wept. Yet Martha did so, she grieved, knowing that, I quote, I know that my brother will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. So she had a, a hope that was formed through the Jewish scriptures uh, and formulated in the first century in the life of Jesus. Now, she didn't recognize the hope that was standing in front of her, but she grieved with a particular kind of hope, and she gave us a gift in that way. We'll see that today. Note that Jesus grieved too. Jesus wept. He grieved knowing that he is the hope in front of her and the hope in front of you tonight. He'll say to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Now get your mind around that. What do you do with that? The one who believes in me will live even though they die. I'll put it another way. Even though they die, they live. I mean, you, you have to come to terms with a promise like that. One writer put Jesus' grief like this. He cried. He knew Lazarus was dead from... Uh, before he got the news, but still he cried. He knew Lazarus would be alive again in moments, but still he cried. He wept because knowing the end of the story doesn't mean you can't cry at the sad parts. That's profound. Today we are on grief and death and love, the holy trinity of humanness. But we are also on life and hope and resurrection we gain tonight a deeper hope that comes with a deeper conviction of the gospel. And today we discover that the earliest church that we have a look into, uh, which is this church here that Paul wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica, is the earliest piece of writing we have from the New Testament. It predates the book of Acts, and we find out that they had a hope beyond the grave for those who lived and died. And that's important when Romans can put you in the grave. How do you take a stand. Today is about our ultimate future. It falls into two neat sections, 4 verses 13 to 18 on page 7, and then 5 verses 1 to 11. And there are connections between the two, namely that Paul states the subject matter 
at the beginning in 4 verse 13, 5 verse 1, then explores the subject matter in the body of each section, and then he concludes by saying, encourage one another, build one another up at the end of both of the sections. And all of this is part of a larger section called Other Matters, 4 verse 1. So in the first section from verses 13 to 18, Paul addresses the new Christians in Thessalonica and he writes about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. In other words, those who are Christians but have already died. By the way, this is language we don't use anymore. But excursion, come to the front after the service, after you've written your Japanese order, and look at the plaques up here. John Douse Langley, went from here to Bishop of Bendigo, fell asleep. His wife, Louisa Carruthers, over here, fell asleep at Bishop's Court in Bendigo. Not the first person to fall asleep in Bishop's Court. Someone else over here entered rest. Entered rest over here. Come look up, come forward. Not now, later. It's language we don't use anymore, but it's language they used then and they got it from the Bible. For the early Christians, they said, well, what happens to them? And the second section, he writes about times and dates of the coming of Jesus. And these are two sides of the one coin, and the one coin is Christian eschatology, which is a fancy word, which means our view of the end. I mean, if you're truly secular, there is no end. There's just movement forward to what? The sun swallowing up the earth. That's what you've got. Christians have a more developed sense through the promises of God. And today we find out that a healthy Christian eschatology can both change lives and shape a community. And we need to talk about this. We need to talk about it because here's a truth that people rarely say, and I'll say it. There is a lot of death in your future. I speak by way of prophecy. But it's, it's a given. It's, it's inevitable. There is a lot of death in your future. Either your own, or if you outlive others, you'll be saying goodbye, and you'll be saying, maybe not now, and it's hard to imagine this when you're younger. But there's no way around this. Put your hand up if you've heard the name Kirk Douglas. Hand up, he's an actor. Thank you. Less people at 4 p.m. Man from Snow River played two roles. He died a couple of years ago at age 103 or so. He wrote at age 100, he said, I quote, I am now 100 years old, I read about Hollywood, and I don't know people. Where is Bert? Lancaster. Where is Laurence Olivier? They're all gone, I miss them, I feel lonely. The gospel gives those in Christ a way forward to deal with this. As I said before, our passage is linked to 4 verse 1, where Paul gets onto what he calls other matters, and what we have in chapter 4 is one of the earliest catechisms, like what do you want new Christians to believe in dot points, in sentences? And you get, uh, 4 verses 1 to 8, abstain from fornication, sex outside of marriage, uh, flee from sexual immorality, so be self-controlled using your body in ways that are holy and honourable, that's in the catechism. Secondly, it's make it your ambition to live a quiet life. This is about work. Roger took us through this last week and about loving others with your work. That's in the catechism. And today, get your focus right about the coming of the Lord. That's in the catechism. So two points today if you're following your outline on page eight. We need to be informed about grief and death, the first section, and then be informed about 
times and dates. The second section will be shorter to manage your expectations on a Sunday night. But note, you'll notice that uh, in 4 verse 13, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, which means we want you to be informed about those who sleep in death. Then he informs them of something they didn't already know. And then in the second section, he says in 5 verse 1, now brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you that he reminds them of something they do know. So in the first section, he informs them of something they don't know. In the second section, he reminds them of something they do know and then explores it a bit further. So firstly, we need to be informed about grief and death. And there's three things to say here if you're following in your outline. We need to grieve, we need to believe, and we need to receive. That's not hard to remember. I'll ask you next week. We need to grieve, but in a particular way, not just in any way, 4 verse 13. We need to believe, but in a particular way, not just in any way. Not every belief will do. And we need to receive a particular word, not just any positive word. So let me work our way through this passage a little bit more slowly. All who've loved and lost grieve. Otherwise, we've either not loved or not lost or not been healthy in our grief. We need to grieve. We need to learn to grieve. Christianity is not stoicism. It's not the English stiff up a lip and we're not the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross idea of death is your friend, a door that we just all enter and we're not interested in the sort of 20th century Christian postcards on the matter, I will not be placated by, by platitudes we need to learn to grieve and grieve properly and Paul gives them the information that allows them to do it, verse 13 brothers, sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed. We want you to be informed about those who sleep in death, like John, his wife, Louisa, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It should be said that the problem in Thessalonica is not our problem. Their problem is that they believe that Jesus will return very soon, like in their lifetime. Now, remember, this is an early letter of the New Testament, and Paul develops the theology of resurrection according to the word of Jesus as time goes on and 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 where you get a much more developed sense of the resurrection and the hope that you have in the resurrection but this is an early account and their problem was about those who sleep in death those who've already died they died before the big moment and so would they miss out like you know would they miss out they're in the grave would they miss out on the renewal of all things, since they are no longer waiting for his son from heaven, but in a grave. And so they were worried. I suspect that Timothy brought this concern back to Paul. Timothy would, you know, they're fuzzy on hope, they're wobbly, they're, they, they, they're uninformed. And Paul writes this section to inform them. And I suspect that you could argue that many of us are uninformed too, not being confident about what happens to those who sleep. And Paul says to them, let me inform you about this. He doesn't give them the answer to every question they could ask, but he gives them a shape, tools, a way forward. And he says of those who died, grieve, but in a particular way, not like the rest of humankind who have no hope, because you do have hope for them. Now, by the way, that's a double negative. Do not grieve as those who have no hope. And as you know, a double negative is a no-no. So let me make this a yes-yes. 
Let me turn this into a double positive, which nobody has problems with. Paul is basically saying, grieve, hopefully. Grieve, hopefully, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You do have hope for these brothers and sisters. Now, this text doesn't answer the pastoral question of how you grieve for those who do not believe in Christ or not in Christ. That's for another text. It's not for this one, although it is an important one, and I'll say one thing about that in a moment's time. My grandfather was a lifelong atheist, and he lost his first wife, my father's mother, in 1944 to breast cancer. My dad was four years old, has no memories of his mother, except that he says, I remember her sweetness. And interesting, no actual memories. I remember her sweetness. When she died, Arnie Pegg, who'd sort of been raised in a sort of, I don't know what you'd say, she went to a Roman Catholic school, and so she sort of had the, the Hail Mary sort of view of the world, and she goes to my grandfather and she says, what shall I tell little Mike? Arnie Pegg says, what shall I tell little Mike? He's four years old. Should I tell him that she's gone to be with the angels? And Grandpa, an atheist, said, just go and tell him that she's dead. And I, you know, I appreciate the honesty. I mean, because he, he, he doesn't believe, and so he's actually honest. A load of other people will be dishonest for a week around a period of grief, and for understandable reasons, don't get me wrong, but I appreciated the honesty. My father would not have this. He became a believer in his 30s, never too late. And he now believes in grieving, hopefully. But we're not just talking about any kind of uh, grief or any kind of hope. We're not talking about the just wishful thinking. The Aussie classic at a funeral is he's up in heaven having a beer for all of us. This is not that. Or Irving Berlin, the song is ended, but the melody lingers on. Great for a poster. This is not that. We grieve in a particular way, and we believe in a particular person. It's a particular hope we believe it, and a substantial one. And by the way, you, you'll get, you will get pushback and the pushback will be, hey, as long as you're okay, whatever hope you choose, it's okay, because the only thing that matters is that you have a hope. In the Christian worldview, it's a particular hope, a substantial hope, one connected to a thousand years of promise, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it's in verse 14, for we believe, we have hope unlike the rest of mankind, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and because Jesus died and rose again, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. This is in our Anglican funeral services. Begins this way. It's the gospel that gives us this hope. The gospel that Jesus died and rose again, which is why we sing this song over and over. By the way, when Paul writes about the rest of mankind who have no hope, what he means is they don't have this particular hope and therefore they have no hope. And the logic goes something like this. They may have other hopes, many hopes, 
lots of hopes, including religious hopes. There's no end of hopes about the afterlife in the ancient world, but they don't have this hope. And because Paul believed, as I do, that Jesus' resurrection is the only hope in the grave, therefore they have no hope. That's the logic, and it's the same logic in Ephesians chapter 2. Notice it's rooted in the historic events of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is why it's so important to consider how you might utilize John Dixon in two weeks' time. Jesus goes before us in death and then in resurrection, and he brings us with him, those in Christ. Notice also it's relational hope. It's with Jesus, and in chapter 5, with us, not just caught up into the universal soul. This is not nirvana. We we grieve, we believe, and we receive, but a particular word, look at verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that, meaning that this is a development of some of the things that Jesus said in the Gospels. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now that's gobsmacking. Because what it's saying is, someone who's fallen asleep, someone who's already in the grave, will win, will receive something. And in fact, we who are alive won't precede them. They'll get something before us. And that's gobsmacking because if you've been to a gravesite, and some of you have, and there's, maybe there's raw memories there, but if this is the only word you have, the thing in front of you, not another word from above or a word from God, a gospel that speaks into this word that's enacted in front of you in, a, in an act of burial. If this is the only word you have, there is no victory in the grave. There is no winning. There's just lying the body down. Paul says, receive a particular word, namely that we who are alive, who are left at the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Why? For verse 16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. This is imagery from Sinai. I'll come to that in a moment. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Yes, this is our hope. And by the way, I know what I'm saying when I say it. And all of you people who say, you have to be dumb to believe this. I just ask you to consider how much education is in the room tonight. And if you don't know, let me point out how much education is in the room tonight. We're not talking about uneducated people. We're talking about people who consider the information carefully. This is our hope. The dead in Christ will rise first. That means, by the way, that God cares about the body. We're not Gnostics who just sort of believe in a soul floating. They'll rise first, and verse 17, after that, we who are still alive, who haven't died, and a left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, there's some metaphors here going on, I think, and I'll explain them in a moment. But the key is, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, this is a strange word, and people struggle with it, and theologians, commentators, and uh, and scholars argue about what this means, and bless them, let them argue away. By the way, if you, I don't suggest this, I, so why should I say it? If you Google this, set an egg timer 
for how long you'll... Because it's a rabbit hole of 19th century and 20th century dispensational rubbish. Coming all out, of, all out of the world, it does come from America in particular. And by the way, if you read stuff and you start to see caps and lots of underlining and exclamation points, more than one, you know you're in bad territory. Abort, abort, abort. Okay. What is this particular word? Well, this is not left behind if you know that American book and series and was traumatised by it as a teenager, as my wife was in the South. We need to leave behind, left behind. This text, I believe, is rich with imagery, and we're meant to read it through the imagery. Stay with me here. First, Paul here is echoing the story of Moses, who came down from the mountain with Torah. Jesus comes down with the gospel. That's why the trumpet is sounding, the loud voice is heard, because Moses, that happened to Moses, and after a long wait, Moses came down from the mountain to see what had gone on in his absence. And he found people worshipping a golden calf. They were faithless. Whereas in this circumstance, Jesus comes down, not from a mountain, but from heaven, to find people waiting for his son from heaven. They're faithful. Secondly, uh, Paul is echoing Daniel chapter 7, which all Jews would have known, in which the saints of the Most High are vindicated over their pagan enemy. And in this case, the saints of the Most High, believing people, are vindicated over the true enemy, death itself, by being raised up with the Son of Man, as the Son of Man came in the clouds, returned in the clouds, to sit with God in glory. This metaphor was applied to Jesus in the Gospels, now applied to Christians who are suffering persecution. And lastly, and maybe this makes sense of the caught up in the middle, and now people think they're caught up in the middle and then they go up. But there's another reading of this which says they're caught up in the middle and there's a metaphor of a conquering king returning to a city and then actually returning. I'll explain what I mean. The third way to look at it is that Paul is conjuring up images of an emperor or a king visiting a city. The city, the citizens of that city would go out to meet him in the open country and then escort him back into the city singing songs of victory. Paul's image here is not out into the city and back in again, but up to meet the Lord in the air or in the middle. And maybe it should be read with the assumption that people would immediately turn around and lead the Lord back as conquering king of death into the newly remade world. After all, Jesus said, at the renewal of all things. The upshot of it is, your future is taken care of, alive or dead. As I often say around Easter, if the resurrection is true, then your best days are necessarily ahead of you. I'll say it again, if the resurrection is true, your best days are always and necessarily ahead of you, even on your deathbed. Ask someone to pop that on a poster above your bed in your hospice. I gave that once at an Easter service and a lovely lady came up to me afterwards and she just started a business and she was just getting a mortgage she was just, and she's a real hopeful person who believed in the power of positive thinking and she said, that's the thing I'm taking away, that my best days are ahead of me. I'm going to start that business. I'm going to go get that. I'm like, no, lady, this is not that. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you could be in the pits. I'm saying it could be even on your deathbed. Your best, resurrection means your best days are necessarily ahead of you. 
This is not the power of positive thinking, it's the deeper hope that's promised in the gospel. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Grieve, believe, receive a particular way and a particular word and a particular person. Secondly and briefly, we need to be informed about the times and dates. More on this next week. Paul says to the Thessalonians, you've got this one. I don't need to tell you about this. Verse 2, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus said that, that, he, that the day will come like a thief in the night. He said it in Luke 12 and Matthew 24. And it's very cheeky. Jesus comparing himself to a thief. <laughs> I love it. Of course, the point is about timing rather than thieving. Jesus will come and you need to be ready always, even now, even tonight. For in the same way a thief doesn't tell you when they'll arrive, the Lord doesn't tell you either. And what does it stop? It stops laziness, it stops entitlement, and it stops fake faith, of which there is plenty. A child can leave, a child that's put in charge of a home when the parents go away for a holiday, a teenager, for example, can leave the house a total pigsty if they know the hour of their parents' arrival. They just need, what, three hours, maybe six, to clean up that chicken from underneath the couch. If you know the day and the hour, you can be ready for it, and therefore you can live your life whatever way you want to until you got to the hour. But the teenager who knows that his parents might arrive at any hour will generally keep the house clean the entire time. Paul, by the way, then picks up on the awake and sleep language, but this time not to refer to those who've died and those who are alive, but rather to those who are asleep to God. Are you asleep to God? And to those who are awake to him, are you awake to God? So in verse 6 he says, So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. I think sober there might, well it's going to have an implication for alcohol, but it doesn't really mean that. It means sober-minded, clear thinking. More on this next week, but just a quick word to those who are asleep. Are you asleep? He says, if you're asleep, then you'll be caught. Verse 3, while people are saying peace and safety, like they did in the time of the prophets, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape judgment of God. Two metaphors being used. A thief in the night, a pregnant woman doesn't know the hour of, of, of the birth. What's being said here is take this word, this gospel seriously. Follow Jesus Christ. Don't just admire him. Reconstruct your life. Your life depends on it. Read 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 later. Uh, you think things are fine, peace and safety, mortgage, job, job okay. He says, tend to the gospel. Find Christ, or rather be found by him. You will not escape judgment. Verse 7, you are a night person. Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now, as I said before, this text doesn't answer the question of how to grieve the loss of someone outside of Christ. What it does do instead is turn things around and say, you're responsible for yourself. Do what needs to be done tonight. 
And he contrasts night people to those who are of the day, who are confident in the day of judgment. You are daylight people, 5 verse 4. But you, brothers, sisters, you are not in darkness, so that the day should surprise you like a thief. You are children of light. You are children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. We belong to the day. Verse 8. Then he tells you what that means. Let us be sober and sober-minded. Put on faith and love as a breastplate to face the pressure for the day and the hope of salvation as a helmet. And why? Because of the gospel. You can put that helmet on. Namely, that Christ died so that you won't have to, not ultimately, even if you go to the grave. Christ suffered wrath so that you don't have to suffer wrath. This is the good news. Namely, that he slept in the ground so that you could rise and live. And it's in verse 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our King, our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are, back to the old metaphor, whether we are awake or asleep, living or, or, or laid in the grave, we may live together with him. Samuel Crossman, here might I stand seeing no story so divine, never was love, dear king, never was grief like thine. Four tips to leave you with. First, know that resurrection could make for a very compelling community, those who have their minds on things above, not on earthly things. Paul finishes this section with the exhortation to encourage one another and build one another up, just as in fact you are now doing. And in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, encourage each other with these words. These are words to encourage each other with. I know a mum and a dad of a 15-year-old who became Christians because their daughter was, had a gripping fear of death that the psychologist couldn't handle. They just couldn't, didn't know what to do with. She came on a youth camp at my church. I was there at that camp, and she... Four days, came home, no fear of death. Zero. Parents said, what was said there? They found a community unafraid of the final enemy. Secondly, we need to talk about it, encourage one another with these words and sow hope into the lives of others. This particular hope that comes through following Jesus Christ. You need to do it by talking with each other and learning a language where you point out things to each other about how resurrection hope can change a life. And I know this is like going to the art gallery. I'm lousy at an art gallery. I'm the last person to sign up to go to one, but I'm the last person to leave it at the end. And that's partly because Laurel knows and understands art, and she'll say to me, do you notice the light behind the... you notice how the shadows... you notice how the reactions and the faces of the... And I'm like staring at it going, oh, my goodness, I never knew. I couldn't see that before. And then I'm pointing out things that she hadn't seen, you see. And I think there's something about speaking the gospel into people's lives. It's a bit like that, if you notice this. What about that? We need to be gospel people. Third, don't deny grief. Don't ever deny someone their grief. You don't have to deny it because you believe that those who are asleep in Christ will awake. No, the passage says grieve. Jesus wept. He wept knowing that the end of the story doesn't mean you can't cry in the sad parts. And fourth and finally, rub hope deep into grief. We're going to do that by singing in a moment's time. Rub hope deep into grief, like people used to rub salt into meat to keep it fresh. Rub hope deep into grief. To borrow from George Herbert, death used to be an executioner, 
Now, because of the resurrection, he's just a gardener. To quote Sam Aubrey, whose book on singleness is on the back table, you don't bury Christians, you only plant them. Our bodies do not become rotting corpses, but, 1 Corinthians 15, instead they become germinating seeds. No journey to the grave is one way, so says the resurrection. And John Donne says, again drawing on the sleeping metaphor, if we die, one short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. Amen. We are but dust, but we are confident in the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know that he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. I don't know what people are going through tonight. Maybe you'd like to pray with somebody after the service with uh, Graham or Bronwyn or me or Emma. But whatever our situation, I pray that you'd be ministering to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit. If we're grieving, help us to grieve in a healthy way. Help us to grieve as ones who have hope. Help us to sow this hope into each other's lives and to rub hope deep into the grief. We pray that we might become, in your power and the power of your Holy Spirit, a community marked by love, a community profoundly influenced by resurrection hope. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.